I think the powers that be, they would really like us to just fight each other and not realize that we have much more in common than is otherwise demonstrated through our media, through our songs, through our culture, through our education, everything. If we started actually talking to each other, we could, I bet we would find a whole lot in common. But they want to keep us stirred up so we don't actually have those conversations. And I think that's sad. It's been historically the case where people are impatient. It's like, why is this happening? Why isn't this changing now? Why aren't you doing something about this? Why aren't you doing something about this? I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. We are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jack Miller. Your other co-host, Dan Emerson, is off at a district student council meeting tonight representing the constituents at his high school community. And he's also been attending what are pretty anger-filled, divisive, and controversial school board meetings. He's out there in the fight, listening and trying to get the views and ideas and interests of the people that he represents heard. Even though the district student council has no official vote on the school board, they are an important voice of students. So I'm very proud of him for being out there. For this week's show, we have an interview that I conducted here in the White Tiger studio with a Republican state senator, Kim Thatcher. She represents a district that stretches from just south of Portland down through Salem. She's been in the legislature first as a member of the House and recently as a member of the Senate for over 16 years. And I was very glad that she spared the time to come sit down and talk to me about a lot of different issues that are on her mind and to answer my sometimes difficult questions. We had a great conversation, and rather than talk about it, I'm just going to roll tape. So here is Republican State Senator Kim Thatcher. So I'm talking to Senator Kim Thatcher today. Thanks for coming to the studio. My pleasure. You have been a senator for a little over six years, and prior to that, you were in the Oregon House of Representatives for a decade. So you've been around Salem for a pretty long time. What would you say is the biggest change or some of the biggest changes in the way that politics have felt to you and looked from the inside during that period of time? A lot has changed, especially when 2020 came around. But before that time, I'll just speak to that. It seemed like there was more commonality found between both sides of the aisle on what are now just toxic, controversial, divisive issues. They've just turned into that. It seemed like there was more agreement, more yeah, I think I can see your point on that and, and coming together to, to work on something. And, and it just seems a lot more divisive now within the building. I don't see that same divisiveness necessarily existing within the, the community at large. 
it seems like Washington, D.C. politics have kind of almost entered into Oregon and where, where we just have a little less cooperation, a little less conversation, a little less trying to find a way forward. And it's just it's gotten a little bit more toxic, I guess you could say. Right now, you know, you mentioned Washington, D.C., and it's it does seem like politics at the state and local level have gotten more nationalized over mm. the last couple of decades. Why do you think that is? When I started, I didn't have an iPhone. And the reason I say that is technology has changed a lot. I started out, I had a BlackBerry. That was the cutting edge when I when I got in there. And a little bit later, near the beginning, then the iPhone came out. And then all the things that accompanied that, all the apps, all the <laughs> all the, the social media. That, so communications have gotten a little more sophisticated in that way. And therefore, you have people not just from local areas, not just within your neighborhood, not just within your district or city or whatever. You have people weighing in from all over the state. You have people weighing in from other states. You have, it's just gotten more national. It's just the conversations have bigger reach now. Because in the old days, basically, I mean, you represent what, about 120, 130,000 Oregonians, something like that, right? Right, right. And that's a relatively small number of constituents to have. And members of the House have about 65 or 60, mm-hmm. 65. So that's pretty close up. And so you can connect to the community. And you're saying, it sounds like you're saying that prior to ever present technology communication, you could be connected to the community and outside voices weren't as much in your head. And so that's changed in a way? I think so. I think so. I think that's been a big influence. The I don't know if you just want to call it technological advances. I don't know if they're advances or not, but um, just the new way of communicating, the new way of bringing in conversations from everywhere that are, like you said, ever present. And I think that that can help bend things a little bit. You also have people who I think are agitators on both sides who want to throw things into the mix and, and it just, it gets kind of toxic too. And I don't care for social media all that much, but I think that is one of the bigger influences on why things have changed, um, gotten a little bit more Washington DC like in their appearance. You mentioned earlier that, you know, the divisiveness that you feel in the building in Salem, you don't feel it out in the community. And I hear that from a lot of people. And it does seem like in opinion polls, Americans want their elected officials to compromise and that people don't have such partisan views on various policy issues. And yet elected officials do. And so there's this disparity between what's happening among Democrats and Republicans in the community and what's happening among Democrats and Republicans in state houses and in Congress and in electoral arenas of all kinds. Is that because social media gives a voice to the divisive and those who aren't don't speak as loudly? No, I think attitudes have changed a lot. I think there have been, to me, I think that my view is the Democrat Party has changed a lot as far as who is representing the people, the stances they're taking, to me, seem like they're so much different than they were and that it is more polarizing because of that because we're getting further apart. Now, I'm sure that the opposite might be said from the other side of the aisle, but I just, I don't know why. I think there's some influences within our society on the news, in movies, whatever, that stir up certain issues. They're meant to stir up certain issues and make you think about them and change things. And I think there's some really big influences out there that cause us to want to fight against each other instead of really looking at the bigger problems together and figuring out a way forward. 
I think the powers that be somewhere, I don't know, global elites, whatever you want to call them, they would really like us to just fight each other and not realize that we have much more in common than is otherwise demonstrated through our media, through our songs, through our culture, through our education, everything. If we started actually talking to each other, we could, I bet we would find a whole lot in common. But they want to keep us stirred up so we don't actually have those conversations. And I think that's sad. Now, you are an elected official. And to a lot of people, you would be in the category of they, the powers that be. Yet you are sitting here referencing the powers that be. Can you be more specific Mm. about who you think belongs in this universe of forces that wants people to argue and fight and be divided? I think there are some people that have big influence on what's in the media and it goes beyond borders. It goes more to wealthy elite, the people that would go to Davos, you know, World Economic Forum, what are those, those types of folks, the big wigs, they, they've got their agendas, they've got their plans, they've got the money to do it. And they can put some of these things in place that they want. And I do think they would rather have us fighting amongst ourselves so that we don't turn to them and go, wait a minute, what are you doing to us? That's just one theory right there. Oh, you know, you mentioned social media. And right now, as we're sitting here in late October of 2021, Facebook is very much in the news for the role that it seems to have played in stoking a lot of this divisiveness and the idea that anger fuels engagement and engagement is their business model. Hmm. So the more people engage, the more money they make. And it turns out Facebook has studied this and other psychologists have studied this, that people are more likely to be engaged when they're angry Hmm. than when they're calm. I remember back in the mid-90s when the internet first hit, there was this idea that it was going to bring real communities of interest together. It was going to sort of democratize political discourse so that we could have a lot of voices. And and that's been true. And then when social media first came out in the early 21st century, people were saying, oh, communities of interest can meet in this virtual space and form community. And that is going on. There is an awful lot of that going on. And Facebook is very clear to point out we promote communities. But if at the same time there's this dark side that is more divisive than unifying. What can we do about it then? You're in the state legislature. Is there any noise in Salem about doing something about social media? Or is it just seem to all y'all that you can't do it? The latter. There have been discussions about so-and-so being canceled, shut down, admonished, whatever they do, put in Facebook jail, (laughs) getting their hands slapped for saying something. It's like, wow, gee. And it sometimes feels like it comes down more on some some issues than others. I think social media has changed a lot. They got us all hooked on it, and then now they're going to be controlling it controlling what is being said, what is allowed to be said, what is going to get shut down. My first instinct when I heard about the whistleblower reports, and I have a I have teenagers who use Instagram and social media and the, you know, the damaging effects on teenagers is very concerning to me. My first instinct uh, as kind of a good classic, I'm a 50 something liberal was I'm just going to get off of Instagram and Facebook and I'm going to get off of these social media platforms as a form of boycott, right? And if a bunch of us did this, they would change their behavior. And that's what we learn. Boycott is a way to, to go about it, consumer pressure. But here we are, I'm interviewing you on my podcast. How do I let people know I have a new episode? How do I reach listeners? How do I get the messages out that I want to get out if I get myself off of social media? So it feels like a trap. It does feel like a trap. That's what I'm saying. They got us kind of hooked into the system, if you will. And now they're kind of changing it under our feet. And we do see things wrong with it. We do think that there needs to be some sort of change. What it is exactly, I don't know. But I do think 
I just think people need to be aware. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that a boycott raises is, okay, are there market mechanisms that could induce a change in behavior among these tech giants? And one of the things I think has been a problem for a lot of people is the lack of transparency. Market mechanisms can't work without free information. And so part of the thing about social media companies is if they're using algorithms for deciding what we see, that we don't know what's in the algorithms. We can't use a market mechanism to correct it. We can't look at the algorithm and say, Mm -hmm. oh, hey, here's a a third-party app that will allow you to break the Facebook algorithm. Do you think that there are potential market mechanisms for dealing with this? I should say, I don't know if this is an area of policy you know much about. I just, it's I a fascinating... don't know much about it, but I think you're right about the algorithms. That kind of struck a chord with me that we do need more information on what, what are they doing? They're manipulating, turning the dials back in the background and we don't necessarily see what's happening. We don't know how it's affecting us. We don't know how it's affecting the messaging out there. We don't know what's being turned down. Should it be turned down? We don't know what's being turned up. Should it be turned up? I mean, those are the things that I think there are some alternatives coming out right now. I mean, there's there's a lot of different rumble came out in response to YouTube shutting down people. There's Getter, I guess. I don't know. I'm not on those. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole list of market-based solutions there just offering alternatives. There is a lot of money to be made, and so competitors should be inspired to get into the market. One of the things about market mechanisms is that they often take a while. They're not instantaneous. No. And so if we're at a particularly problematic moment right now where we're seeing the power of Facebook... Twitter and Google and Apple, any market mechanism is going to take several years minimum before that is going to change. I know I'm kind of riffing off of something that you started, but that makes me think about patience. And it gets me back to my original question. You know, you've been in politics for a long time. To get things done takes patience. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why people spend a decade or more in Mm -hmm. an elected office, running every two years and raising money and doing all of that horrible, fun stuff. Have you seen a change in the way constituents and colleagues and opponents relate to the issue of patience in terms of having the patience to go through the long process of trying to solve hard problems? I don't think that has changed. I think there's, it's been historically the case where people are impatient. It's like, why is this happening? Why isn't this changing now? Why aren't you doing something about this? Why aren't you doing something about this? And it's like, well, in order to do anything, this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen, and this needs to exist, and that, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. Sometimes it's just a matter of educating people. Sometimes it's Actually, I think a lot of that is educating people on how the political process works, how our constitution works, how the three branches of government work, how in order to get anything done as a legislative body, whether it's the city council or a county commission or the legislature, you have to have a majority. People don't get that sometimes. They're just like wondering why you aren't doing something about X, Y, or Z. It's like, well, okay. (laughs) First of all, I am in the minority. And I would have to convince other people on their side. I don't think they would really go for that. So that's not going to happen right now. And they get impatient. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. Republicans do have a reputation at this moment for being fundamentally obstructionist, and this is at the national level. 
Now, you're a state-level Republican. I have sort of a double question. One, do you think that your caucus is obstructionist? And two, if you're not obstructionist or if you decide that you don't want to be, yet you're in the minority, how do you have an impact other than waiting until you get into the majority? What is a minority to do but obstruct, I guess is a different way to put it. That is a very good question because when I first got into the legislature, I was in the majority. And I saw the other side as being obstructionist. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast, I think. We did actually, I mean, like in the beginning, I said there there were many times where we would find common ground and we look for that common ground on what are now, have now become very controversial and divisive issues. But at the time, we, we would be able to find a few people across the aisle to move the ball forward on something after we became in the minority. But at the beginning, we were in the majority, and it seemed like they would sing from the same piece of paper, and they would ding us on things over and over and over again. It felt unfairly at the time and inaccurate at the time, but I think that's just now the shoe's on the other foot. I think it's just how it is always seen by the other side, <laughs> whether, you know, they might've thought it was just perfectly accurate and perfectly fine to say. And, but I was thinking, wow, that is just not, not right what they're saying. Why are they saying this? And then we're saying things they're, they're probably thinking we're being inaccurate. We're being divisive, you know, all these, these things. I just think it's just the nature of the beast, unfortunately. And that's what you have to do. I was recently interviewed by, uh, OPB journalist who was talking about gerrymandering asked me to respond to what the Democrats were doing here in Oregon and cited the statement by Republican legislators about how it's unfair and it's wrong. And I said, the Democrats are saying the same thing in states where Republicans are in charge of redistricting. It's just what you have to say. Don't expect elected officials to not say the thing that you have to say, which is what you're doing is unfair. And the only thing in the minority that you can do is say that's unfear. Right. Whether you're a Democrat in the, in the minority or a Republican in the minority, the script is essentially the same, right? <laughs> it really is. Given that, does that mean the only thing to do is to try to fight your way back into the majority? Or is there some way to have there be cooperation when we have a two-party system? Where you can. This might sound like a really horrible analogy, but sometimes there's just no comp- there's no meeting of the minds because it's just like, well, let's vote on having a peeing section of the pool, the non-peeing section. Well, no, there's no, no, I don't want any of it in there. There's no compromise on that, for instance. I mean, it's just where I like you, that can't, example. <laughs> you can't find it's like, there's still going to be pee in the pool and I don't want pee in the pool. I think it's a bad idea, you know, whatever. So it's some, sometimes there's just issues where you, there's no meeting of the minds. Now, what I think we have is a meeting of minds on many of the problems that we have, the issues, the things facing us. How to solve them is usually where we have our disagreements. Does that mean really that politics is going to really be a struggle just to be in the majority so that your view on what the solution is gets enacted? Or is there something else? I mean, you've been in politics for a long time and you stay in it. You know, it's not fun to campaign and raise money. I know this. Almost nobody who does it ever says, yeah, I love campaigning. But if you do it year after year, it must be because you want to have a hand in the solution. So how do yeah. we get solutions other than just winning elections? Or is it, does it come down to that? I think it also depends on the mix of people you have. That brings a question then. So, and you brought this up in your time in the legislature. It feels more divisive. Are there different types of people being drawn into running for state legislature? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it that 
it's the same kind of people, but they're responding to different factors like social media and a louder and more extremist base pushing Republicans to the right and Democrats to the left. I don't know if it has changed as far as recruiting and recruitment of candidates from the beginning time of me being in the legislature to now, but it does seem like Democrats are usually more activist as far as belonging to groups and pushing forward, a, you know, having a pressure group or whatever. Republicans also have them, but are more likely to be, you know, I'm just going to take care of my family, go to business, you know, work, church, and volunteer, whatever. And they're not full-time doing that. And Democrats are really good at that. They're very organized. <laughs> and they have a thing, a, a machine, if you will. But it's very effective. It's just two different mindsets, really. One's more wants to have a coalition of people all on the same page, a consensus, if you will. And other ones are, we're just looking at problems differently, maybe more from an individual view. And it's, I think sometimes there's a collision there. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but no, you know. It actually sounds like maybe there's a cultural gap. Yeah. Um, I have been studying and following American politics for close to three decades. I tell this to my students that, you know, the Democratic Party tends to recruit from people who are what I call do-gooders and you mm -hmm. called activists. Lawyers are common in both parties. Mm -hmm. The lawyers that the Democratic Party tends to recruit are public defenders mm -hmm. and the lawyers that the Republican Party tends to recruit are prosecutors. Right. And that's a very blunt characterization. Yes. But, you know, yes. Democratic elected officials tend to come more from that activist class. Yes. And Republican elected officials tend to come more from the business class. You are a business person. I am. Am I right? Mm -hmm. And so is that a cultural gap? Hmm. That I mean, you're all Americans. You're mm -hmm. all elected officials. Mm -hmm. You're all state legislators. Is the place that you're coming from different enough that it just means that essentially we don't just have a two-party system. We have a two-culture system. Is that too strong of a point, maybe? I'd never thought about that before, but I think you're on to something there, possibly. <laughs> well, I think that's a very good point, actually. Does that possibly point us to some kind of a solution, which is okay to realize that we're actually speaking across cultures? Yeah, like you this. Know, <laughs> when, you know, when, when diplomats negotiate with diplomats from other countries, they take into account the fact that they're from different cultures. Right. You know, there's not an expectation that if you're an American diplomat speaking with a Chinese diplomat, that you're not going to have to do some cultural training right. in right. order to be able to do that. Do we maybe need cultural training for elected <laughs> officials? How to, you know, Cultural how, competency. How to, speak, how to speak to a Democrat, how to <laughs> right. speak to a Republican. I mean, it it, it I sounds that, crazy. But. I actually think that's a great idea. I think we, we could probably do that. If there was some actual goodwill on both sides to do something like that, I think that's a great idea. Is there goodwill on both sides? Because everybody I talk to who's in politics, I come away from one-on-one -on -one conversations convinced that everybody has a good heart and wants to solve the problems that their community faces. Mm -hmm. Am I right about that? Or is that just sort no, of a naive response? No, I think response? that's right. No, I really do think that's right, especially in Oregon. Historically, that has always been my attitude that everybody's there to serve and do their best for their constituents, do their best for the issues that they matter to them. It's just that it has become a little bit more polarized, unfortunately. So we can count on goodwill then, mm -hmm. and maybe so. we just need cultural training. You might have solved it right I there. I, you know, I, I didn't expect to sit down and solve the problem with American politics right, today right. with you, Kim. I'm, I'm glad we did. But before I let you off the hook, I do want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests, mm -hmm. which is, what is something that used to outrage you and no longer does? And most importantly, why does it not outrage you anymore? Before I got into politics, I was of the mindset that we really needed to have term limits. 
we got to get these people out there. They don't need to be there forever and ever and ever. You know, like here I am <laughs> saying this now. And I obviously have changed my mind about it. And it's simply because we do have term limits. We have elections every two or four years in Oregon or two or six years at the national level. And that is the time. If you want to make a change, that is when you make that change. Otherwise, what you have left behind, and this is the why, you have left behind the same old staff, the same old bureaucrat. You don't have institutional knowledge within the legislative body. You have it in the bureaucracy, and then they would take control. There would be less accountability. They'd be running the place, and I don't think that's right. It was supposed to be uh, the lawmaking power vested within the legislature, and the legislature needs to have different levels of experience. I don't think we need to have everybody be there forever, but having new blood in there happens automatically. I've noticed between a quarter and a third of the legislature churns normally anyway without just term limits. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And then when I noticed when people did leave, they were usually uh, replaced with somebody who was very similar in thought <laughs> to them. So it was kind of the same person, only with a different face, if you will, just as far as politically speaking. I love the phrase, we do have term limits, they're called elections. I believe that. That, though, assumes that we have competitive elections. And I think one of the problems that we're becoming more and more aware of in this particular moment in American political history is we don't have enough competitive elections. We have too many safe seats. We have state legislatures controlled by both parties who are doing their best to lock in safe seats through various mechanisms. Do we need then a kind of a reform movement to not limit terms, but to ensure greater political competitiveness so that the statement, we have term limits, they're called elections, is a meaningful statement mm -hmm. and not just a statement of formal truth. Well, and what you're talking about deals a lot with redistricting. After the census, every 10 years, the lines are redrawn. And you talked about how, you know, one side would say that's not fair, and the other side would say that's not fair. In 2010, the legislature came together in an agreement. Not everybody was thrilled, but you didn't hear that. You didn't hear that's not fair. I don't remember that anyway. I could be wrong, but I don't remember as much division because there was an even split in the House. The Secretary of State was a Democrat, obviously, and so was the Senate. It was Democrat run at the time, so it wasn't split everywhere. But there was some consensus. Well, and that was driven by the fact that there was divided government, right? If the House was evenly At least split, on one side, on one right. side. But all it takes is one chamber to be not in unified control for there to be some incentive mm -hmm. to come together to create at least minimal consensus. That was my favorite session, by that, the way. <laughs> right. Well, that, I mean, if you know, that is one of the things we're seeing right now in the U.S. Senate, whether it's frustrating to a lot of people and it's yeah. particularly frustrating to Democrats, I think, who feel that they have the majority mm -hmm. because they have the vice president seat, right. is that the even division of power does in fact create an incentive to try to work at least a little bit with at least a few people on the other side. I just want to get back. So you're not outraged by that anymore. And no. I can see why. And I'm with you on that. And it's in the states that did enact term limits. Mm -hmm. um, and Oregon actually did in the 90s, yeah. but it was struck down by our courts. But in states like California that did it, exactly what you said happened is that staffers started yeah. having an inordinate amount of power because mm -hmm. they were the ones who had the institutional memory and yeah. the expertise. And so yeah. they had power. And that's Not that good. seems to be moving away from democracy. What's something that outrages you now that maybe didn't when you first started in oh, politics? Or, or, or is the entire beginning of our interview basically the answer to that question? What outrages me now? I mean, there's a lot of things. I just wish that I don't think there's going back, but there's just, like I said, there just seems like there's outside influences that are kind of running things worldwide, if you will. Sounds weird, but it just seems like with, like even with this COVID pandemic, the same, the responses have been similar, you know, along a spectrum, similar across the world. 
and the same things that don't seem to make sense make you wonder, well, okay, it's not a necessarily a public health consideration. What is it? And it's just some things don't add up and some things don't make sense. And that's why I say that. Now, you are a person with some measure of power, and yet I'm hearing a sense of powerlessness. How do you think people who have no power, they have mm-hmm. a vote, one vote, mm-hmm. is the greatest measure of political power mm-hmm. they possess? Do you think that there's, and are you sensing in the world, a sense of powerlessness? Yes. In fact, that's why we do have power in numbers if we're together. And there's that synergy, and we can, make, we can do a lot with that. And that's why there's this effort to divide us and stir up anger within our communities, within our states, within our nation, with all over the world. If this is happening, this division, this trying to influence people to be angry with somebody else because of some outrage. I just think it goes back to the beginning. If we had more of these conversations with each other, not with the people that are organizing all of this, I don't think there's any help there because they think they have their own agenda, but the people who are attracted to whatever movements, if we could get the people together, we would actually find out that, wait a minute, I think we've been played here a little bit. I think we've been stirred up to anger one against another needlessly. We have more in common and our, you know, our anger really should be focused on the fact that our democratic institutions have been controlled, if you will, by elites. I guess that outrages me (laughs) right there. Yeah. And it, you know, one of the promises that social media made was that it would help bring people together. And it seems like that promise has been tremendously broken. (laughs) Um, And so, but that's, that is a hint that yes, it is an important thing for people to set aside whatever anger is being pushed at them. It feels compelling. It feels really good Mm -hmm. until we can set aside our anger and come together. Then we are going to be relatively powerless Mm -hmm. as individuals and as divided communities. Yes. Well, I normally like to get a less bleak ending to an interview. I'm sorry about that. But I'll I'll take (laughs) it because... I I think people are waking up, though. I think people are coming, uh, wait, why? Why is this being pushed on me? And realizing, hey, that really isn't my enemy over there. I think more people are waking up to that. I really, I'm very optimistic that way. Yeah, and if we can acknowledge that it may just be that we are reaching the bottom of where this anger and outrage can take us, we have to push off from the bottom of the pool. And <laughs> before we drown. That, yeah, before we drown. <laughs> All right, well, Kim, thank you so much for coming in. I really had, a, this was a fun conversation. It's always great to talk to people who have a lot of experience and a different perspective. You bet. My pleasure. It has been fun. Thank you.